Okay, then we're looking at John chapter 7 still, and we're looking at those verses that we read from, 10 through 24. Not that I'll touch every verse, but as a whole, we'll look at a few different things. And we've already looked at this discourse that Jesus had with his brethren. We looked at that last time. Then after this discourse that he had with his brethren, and after they had already gone up to the feast, the time came for Jesus also to go. He didn't go straight away, but he went a little later. His brethren had already encouraged him to go up to Jerusalem already for the purpose of uh, showing or witnessing to the disciples there all the works that he was doing, that they might see, that they might understand, that they may marvel. But you see, their logic was a carnal logic. It was a worldly logic. Surely, they thought, if someone desires to be known, and in a sense, you can understand this worldly logic from a worldly point of view. Just like you can understand from a human point of view when Peter turned around and said to, to the Lord, surely may it never be that this happened to you. Well, we might have thought the same thing when he was talking about going up to Jerusalem to be killed. We'd think, Lord, no, surely not you. We need you here. But he turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. For you, your thoughts are the thoughts of man, not of God. And so here these brethren, they say, go up. Surely if somebody desires to be known openly, he ought to show himself to the world rather than stay and linger around these back streets of Galilee. That was their logic. Go to where people will see. Go to where people gather if you want to be seen, if you want to make yourself known publicly, if you want, uh, if you crave and desire the popularity of people. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to get your message out there, go to where people will be gathering. But that wasn't the way of Jesus. Previously in this Gospel of John, a couple of chapters back, Jesus had already stated that he doesn't receive the honour from men. And again, only very recently, with regards to this crowd from the 5,000, he said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was his prerogative. He wasn't there to fill his own life with popularity and fame, but he came to do the will of his father. Many times after healing somebody, if you think about those times that he healed or delivered somebody or did a mighty work for them, he encouraged them, didn't he, to tell no one. Go and show yourself to the priest, but, but don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Sometimes I wonder why. Why would you want to do that, Jesus, shortly? Just the same as these people. Surely you want people to know what you're doing. But he said, no, be, be quiet about it. Go Go and just keep it to yourself. But of course, many times, if not all the time, they couldn't keep their mouth closed and they had to declare what this man had done for them. So Jesus' fame had just naturally spread everywhere. He could no longer go anywhere without people seeking him. People wanting something from him was, was largely the case. They just want what we can get. I have an issue and I know this man can help. 
I have a sickness and I've heard that this man can heal. And largely people went to them for an answer to a specific problem. There were times that he couldn't even get the chance to be alone with his disciples in order to spend time with them, to teach them. Or even a moment simply to eat a meal. But Jesus, as I've said, he didn't seek this popularity. In fact, he tried in ways to avoid it. But the world at large, mankind in general, are absolutely opposite to this way of thinking, this way of acting. So Jesus, speaking of certain rulers who had come to believe in him, and yet wouldn't confess him publicly due to the Pharisees and due to fear of losing their position in the synagogue. He says this, that they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They believed him, but they too afraid to stand out in public and lose their position for the sake of Jesus Christ. They loved the praises of men. They loved the confirmation of men more than they did God. In his rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees, remember in Matthew chapter 23, I believe, the, the famous woe statements. He says that all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They love it. They love the attention. I don't know if you're aware what a phylactery is. You know what a phylactery is when it speaks of phylacteries? It's a box that Jewish Orthodox Jews strapped to their forehead. It's based on the, uh, the Shema. It talks about, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It speaks about having the word on frontlets on their foreheads, and they take it literally. It says, make sure that the word is as frontlets on your forehead. Make it be in your mind is, is, is what it's about. But they took it literally and stuck a box on their forehead. And they love people to see it. Look, I've got the word right on my head, as the word tells me. They love this, this, this pomp and grandeur of the, of, of, of the congregation of the people. They walk down the streets and they're, you know, they're accepting all this laudation. This same trait is in all a fallen, sinful, prideful humanity. It is a trait that is within every person here, including myself. We're all fallen, we're all sinful, we're all prideful in one way or the other. And this trait that these Pharisees were showing is in every one of us to one degree or another. I'm not saying that we're all the same, but it is in us. And I think you all would kind of acquiesce to that. It is true that we may differ in our personalities. Some of us may be extroverts. Some of us may be really outgoing. You know, socially confident and like to be around people and kind of, in some ways, kind of bounce off and crave that attention. We thrive on it. 
On the other hand, other people may be more introverted. Those who find themselves uncomfortable in large crowds and those who, who, who don't want that kind of uh, attention or that kind of fuss, they'd rather just kind of keep themselves to themselves and, and not kind of be the centre of the attention and have people's <coughs> eyes on them. There are all kinds of different people. We're all different in that respect. And none of them are better or worse than the other. We are who we are in our personalities. But no matter our social disposition, we all crave that pat on the back. We all crave that recognition for our good deeds. And I have to say that even as Christians, in the work that we do as unto the Lord, there's always a part of us that wants to share in the glory. Always a part of us where we feel that our name, we like our name to be bounced around just a little. A certain amount of encouragement is absolutely right. It's good. It's needful. We want to encourage each other, don't we? But it's also sufficient. <clears throat> a little encouragement is sufficient. Flattery is a killer. There's a difference. The difference between flattery and encouragement. Flattery glorifies man's own work. Encouragement glorifies God at work in man. There's a difference, you see. And you can see principles and examples through the scriptures where man gave man flattery. And it's destructive. It puffs up. Causes people to think more of themselves than they ought. Whereas encouragement is a good thing. Because it means that we give glory to God for what he's doing in that person. Psalm 147, 10 and 11 says this. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. That's who he has regard for. He doesn't look at your strength and your grandeur or your height or your muscle or your ability to do this and that and the other. Not in whether we can uh, do something particularly well, but it is to do with our heart towards him, those who take pleasure, those who fear God, as we said earlier, and who hope in his mercy. So with all this in mind, Jesus goes up to this feast, not as his brothers had suggested, in all grandeur and expecting everybody to come and watch him and see him, but he goes up, not openly, but as it were, in secret. He goes up hiding himself. He goes up in a way where he's not going to be seen by as many people as, as is possible. Because he, he's not craving that attention. John 7, 11 through 13, we've already read, but I'll just read these verses again. It said the Jews sought him at the feast. As soon as he goes, actually even before he goes, the Jews are thinking... Where is he? Where is this guy? Where is this Jesus of Nazareth? Where is he? It says, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. So some people thought of him. He's a good guy. Other people said, no, 
On the contrary, he deceives people. But nobody spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. This world is a seeking world. Everyone is searching for something. No matter who it is, they might not admit it, but you can see by the way they live that they're searching for something. Remember, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what did they do? They took what was forbidden. I don't know if you thought about it like this, but they stole from God. They stole, they became thieves. They took what God told them not to take. They took what was not theirs. Rather than trust in his provision, rather than trust in his care and his goodness and his guidance, they wanted what was not theirs to have. God had withheld this for their own good. We have to understand then that God sometimes withholds something that we may want, and it's for our own benefit. We might look at it and think, just like they did, oh, this fruit, it just looks so good for food. It looks like it'll make one wise. There's nothing about it, actually, that looks bad. It looks beautiful to behold. And I can't see anything bad about it. I just think, Lord, this could be a really good thing for me. Do not touch that which I have forbidden. And sometimes he will do that with us. He will forbid us to do something that we want, even if it looks fantastic to us. Even if in our own mindset, it looks like it could be the greatest benefit since sliced bread. He withholds it because it is for our benefit. But sometimes he might also allow us to reach out and take hold of that which he's forbidden. And then we must face the consequences of it, just like they did. He allowed it. He told them not to touch it. He told them it wasn't for them. But they reached out, they took it, and they faced the consequences of it. And so do we. What our first parents lost, though, was far more than what they hoped to gain. The consequences also didn't just affect them, but all of their posterity since, which means every one of us. Now, what did they realize? As soon as they ate this fruit, they realized what? That they were naked. This is the first thing that they noticed. They didn't look around and just suddenly see that, that all the animals had changed, that they'd become carnivores and that the thistles had started to grow. The first thing they, they, they felt, they realized was, I'm naked, I've got no clothes on. They noticed that they were uncovered and almost immediately sought a way to cover their nakedness. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Think about that. As many who have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. And in Romans 13.14, Paul endorses them to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To fulfill its lusts. Keep those things in mind. See, before Adam and Eve sinned, they stood in right standing before God. 
They were not ashamed of their nakedness. They were no different in the way they looked than before. One minute they were ashamed, the next minute they were ashamed and they desperately sought to cover themselves. Because they'd lost their righteousness and they needed salvation. That's what they lost. Their nakedness, the way we're told that they suddenly realized they were naked, this is all about shame. All about shame. And this is why they scrambled quickly to try and fix the problem themselves with fig leaves. And then they went to hide from God. Righteousness. Right standing before God was lost. And since that day, all of mankind have garments stained by the flesh. See, our righteousness, as it says in Isaiah, I believe, is as filthy rags. Fig leaves in his presence. That's what he sees. He sees a pathetic attempt of man to try and cover his own nakedness, to try and cover his shame. What a poor clothing leaves will make. <laughs> there is this emptiness within and this deep inbuilt desire for it to be filled in every person. And so since then, the people search for fulfillment one way or the other, once again, in something or other, people fill their lives. But they search blindly. They look blindly. They, gone is that desire for God and for righteousness. We just don't have it. No longer does every green herb and every fruit tree satisfy the empty soul. But now there is a lust after that which is unclean, that permeates humanity. Gone is the ability to discern between holy and unholy, and between that which is clean and the unclean. There is no ability to discern. Man became fools, futile in their thinking, denying God in all unrighteousness. From darkened hearts they made Images into God's. They exchange the truth of the true God for lies and they worship the creature rather and above the creator. They gave the glory to incorruptible man-made entities. And so, as the Bible says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon them. So he gave them over. Gave them over. What does that mean? He says, you want this. Go and have it. You want this wickedness. You want this vileness. You go and have it. I'm giving you over to what you want. And he allowed them. The pig pods that they had chosen to gorge themselves on. Go and eat it. That's what you want. You go and eat it. For one way or another, all mankind search after and serve some kind of God. They may not, might not call it a deity, but one way or the other, they serve something. Some kind of religion, which ultimately really is revealed to be the worship of self. 
We worship ourselves as a human race. We're masters of the universe, gods of our own lives, authors of our own destiny, autonomous. That's what humanity thinks. But this emptiness that is there for every single person, it cannot be satisfied with anything else but from the bread which comes from heaven. It's the only thing that will satisfy. People talk about, I mean, I've heard this, excuse me, in the past, throughout Christian life, they talk about there being a God-shaped hole in every human being. I don't really like that term. But what I do believe is that there is an emptiness. And you can see it by the filth that people continue to eat in this world. They fill themselves with garbage. That really what they need is the bread from heaven. So back to John. Jesus was sought after. People wanted to see him. They wanted to know where he was. Where is this man? But they must have already heard all about him because they were complaining about him amongst themselves, discussing this, that, and the other. They, they couldn't make their mind up about who he is. Some said he is good. This is what I'm talking about in the world. They, we, we, we look at God, we look at Jesus, and we have this big debate in humanity. Of, we're not sure really who he was. And yes, he was a good man, or he was this. and the, No, no, he was a deceiver. That's what the world is like. But even as he went up into the temple to teach the people, they marveled. They marveled at him in wonder. Why? Well, because they knew where we'd come from. They knew that Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee, this back street place where all people were commoners. He didn't come from a prolific family. He didn't come from a, a background of rabbis. He came from a, a man who was a poor carpenter and his wife Mary. Who is this man? Is this not the son of Joseph? So they marveled when they heard him teach because they know, they knew that he didn't come from the school of the Pharisees, but just came from Nazareth. The blind grope around in the dark like an Egyptian seeking. You remember in the plague? In the, in, in the time of Moses, they sent darkness and they were... They were, couldn't see and they were groping around, seeking somebody to lead them by the hand. That's what it's like. The blind grope around, seeking somebody to lead them. But there's only one, only one through whom the eyes of the blind can be opened. And only one who cries, Ephatha, be opened to those who cannot hear. There's only one that can do that. Our first parents lost their covering and their own attempts to close themselves were futile. So God gave them skins. It was all God. Salvation is of the Lord. He gave us what we lost. And he does this in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our covering. Remember those verses. Put on Christ. It's like he's speaking of a garment. We lost garments. We lost the covering. We were naked. 
We realized our shame and now we're told to put on Christ because he gives us back the righteousness that was lost and more. Put on Christ. When we're clothed in Christ, we lose our shame and we're made the righteousness of God in him. This was prophesied long before. Listen to these words in the prophet Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. This is what he's talking about. This is salvation of the Lord. We all stand before Christ with filthy rags, and he says, I will take them from you, and I will clothe you in the richest clothes that there are. Put on Christ. You remember the, the parable of the wedding feast? Listen to what Jesus says. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw that there was a man who did not have on a wedding garment. <clears throat> so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember in John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the sheep, the sheepfold and being the shepherd. He talks about those who try to climb over the fence. There is no back door to the kingdom. We cannot enter just any old way you can't climb over the fence the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ himself is the door and we enter by him if we try to enter by our own good works putting on our own fig leaves we will be found without the right wedding garment and those not dressed in that garment of Christ and his righteousness will be cast into outer darkness. That's what this is about. It's not a harsh story where somebody just turns up to a party wearing rags that aren't quite so nice. All about the fact that there is no way to be in the kingdom of God if we're dressed in our own righteousness. Because all it is is stinking, filthy rags of fig leaves before God. We need him to clothe us in those wedding garments. So amidst all this debate, all this confusion about who Jesus is, whether, whether he's good, whether he's bad, whether he's honest, whether he's a deceiver, he goes up into the temple to teach. In Mark 11, 27 to 28, we read these words. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? 
And who gave you this authority to do these things? Remember, they marveled at him. Don't understand how he could preach and teach the letters so well. And they said, how, how does this man know these letters, having never studied? This also serves to remind us, as we think about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, when he was found by his parents in the temple asking questions of the teachers. What was said of him? All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. No doubt Jesus was taught to read the scriptures as a child, as was the way of the Jewish culture. It was customary. But unlike Paul, who sat at the feet of a famous and celebrated teacher such as Gamaliel, Jesus had not been taught the law and the traditions in any rabbinical school. He hadn't gone that way. He, hadn't, he was just a commoner from Galilee. So he wasn't in their eyes a scholar, you see. He hadn't gone through the right places, the right steps. He hadn't gone through Eton School or Oxford or Cambridge. He wasn't that kind of person. He hadn't gone that way. But he just, he knew the scriptures. And he had a profound understanding and an authority that even the scribes didn't have. And the truth is, he was absolutely unrivaled in his teaching ability. And they were just amazed. So Jesus answers their question of amazement and he tells them that his teaching comes from God. And the way to identify if indeed any teaching is from God or from man is to see who receives the glory and the honor. Is it God or is it man? Jesus didn't seek glory for himself, but for his father. In his great high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4, Jesus says to his father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. I am here to glorify you. That was Jesus' desire. I don't come to glorify myself. I don't seek the praises of men. I come to bring glory to God. The truth is that we may not be scholars. We may not necessarily have that natural inclination or the intellectual ability to be scholars. We all are given different gifts. But we all have a duty to know the letters. We all have a duty to be well-versed in Scripture, to seek a greater understanding and a deep knowledge of it. Well, ought we to cry with the psalmist when he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things. 
from your law. We ought to be crying that to the Lord. Show me, open my eyes. Help me to understand. Give me the ability to grasp what this is telling me. Lord, I need your help. See, there is in this day and age, unfortunately, and there was then, you can see it in scriptures, nothing's changed, nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. But there's loads of doctrine that claims to be Christian being taught in our generation, which isn't. Yet it deceives many because they follow the words taught by men rather than knowing the word for themselves. So Jesus says, if anyone wills to do God's will, if anybody desires to do God's will, he will know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether he speaks of his own authority. Jesus says, you'll know it if it's from God or if it's from me. Well, how will you know? We need to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is God. He's not, he has authority, doesn't he? He can speak the word with authority. The point he was making is that if someone claims to have authority and preaches in ways that only serve to promote and glorify himself, then we know that that teaching is not from God. We must be able to see it. When we listen, when we watch a sermon, when you listen here or wherever it is that you go, when you're on your travels for work and you go to a church, you must listen to the sermon and see, is this man glorifying God or is he glorifying himself? And if he's glorifying himself, then it's not from God. It must be all about Christ. It must be all about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we must be able to discern it. True doctrine, true teaching will always bring glory to God. And if we want to do God's will, we must know that truth for ourselves and know how to spot it when we hear it. If we don't, we're going to end up in so much trouble. So, as we said, the whole world of people are like sheep without the shepherd. Wanderers who still eat anything, and which is most often than not poison. The world in, in righteousness have rejected the one true God in favour of self-serving religions. Works-based belief which rewards the good acts of men. God has given the world over to what it desires. And that nakedness, that lack of fulfilment in the soul is replaced by all manner of wickedness and lies. People try to talk to the dead for some kind of relief that their loved ones are okay on the other side. Others sink into Satanism, giving into the lust of the flesh, feeding it, unleashing the animal nature in some deluded idea of ultimate freedom. Free from all restraints. Still others take on the belief of karma, this Hindu or Buddhist belief that basically it's karma is what will happen to you in your next life based on what you do in this life. Performing kind acts in this life gives you good karma for your next life and so on. And I want you to listen to what Paul says to his son Timothy, his spiritual son. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit, 
who dwells in us. We're told to hold fast to sound doctrine. This doctrine is found in the scriptures and should be taught from the pulpit. We both have a personal obligation to know the truth for ourselves individually, in personal de uh, devotions, and also to be found in the congregation of the righteous, gleaning from those who oversee and each other. As the word says, iron sharpens iron. And then what do we do when we have it? We go and we publish it abroad. The Bible tells us that we ought to go with a message wherever and whatever our going consists of. The people in this world need to hear the message of Christ. It is not a gift for us just to keep close to our chest. Paul said that he had an obligation to preach to all. And he said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. May God grant us a deeper burden for the lost then. A greater understanding of his word. A more expectant faith in God's power to work in this generation. A reliance and trust in the power of the gospel to save. A greater urgency in our lives to work while it's still day. For night is coming when no one can work. And a sweeter, most glorious life of prayer. Let me leave you with these words of John Piper. He says this. Whatever you do, listen to these words. Whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life. And find your way to say it and live for it and die for it, and you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. That's what we've got to do. That's what we have to do in our generation. This, our families need the gospel. This town needs the gospel, and we need to know just how to deliver it to them. Because there are people dying all around us, and we need a greater burden for that. And we need to know what we need to do in order to tell them how to live. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word in John chapter 7. Lord, we have merely scraped the surface, touched the top of the iceberg. And Lord, we ask that you may open up our minds and hearts, oh God, that you may really pierce us through by your word. Lord, I just pray I pray for that hunger and that thirst for righteousness. Lord, for your word that we might devour it, that we might be hungry for it, that it might be everything to us, that this Christian life might not only be some add-on to our lives, but it might be everything, that you might be everything to us. Lord, that you might give us the bravery, the boldness that we might need to take this doctrine that we are soaking ourselves in, this teaching, this truth, and that we might go into our sphere of influence. And that we might even create opportunities. That we might not stand idle. But be found in the marketplace. Delivering this gospel to those who will never hear it. Well, how can we keep such a marvellous gospel to ourselves? Help us to know then what to do, how to do it. 
Give us wisdom, we pray, O oh God, for we want to see even the hardest, as we sang in that song at the very beginning, even the most vile can be made clean. But oh, as we cry with Paul and Romans, how will they hear unless a preacher is sent? How will they hear unless a preacher preaches? How will they hear unless we witness to them the glorious wonders of the gospel of Christ? Lord, we pray that you would help us then to accomplish great things by the power of your Holy Spirit in this, our church, in this generation, in every area that we touch. Lord, we ask it that you may be glorified and that we may see many come to faith in this place. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.